so uh, may the Lord be with me and with you as we open his word. Uh, as you can see, Genesis 22, the near sacrifice of Isaac. The Jews actually call it the Akeda, the binding of Isaac. And uh, just give you the context of this uh, passage. Um, God had already spoken clearly to Abraham half a dozen times. Uh, he commanded him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, that's uh, modern-day Iraq, for Canaan. And he did. Then he gave him the details of the Abrahamic covenant, that he would have many descendants, countless descendants, and that, that his seed would bless the earth, a particular reference there to Jesus who would come from his descendants, and that he would have a land that they would possess and still await the final fulfillment of that, and that he would see the blessing of the nations through what happened in his life through the work of God. Uh, it also been told that the promised seed was through Isaac, and you will know that uh, Isaac was born to his wife Sarah at old age. Uh, the promised seed was not through Ishmael, uh, his child, his son, who he had through his servant girl, Hagar, uh, previously. So what I'll do, rather than read the whole 19 verses now, I'll, I'll take the passage at a time, and let's get into this, because it is a remarkable passage, but as I say, in some ways, shocking in what it asks. Okay, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I cannot imagine what emotions and feelings went through Abraham's mind as he took those words on board. I mean, his precious son, Isaac, the long-awaited promised son through his wife, Sarah, and what he was being told to do. And yet he knew it was the voice of God, and there must have been such agony. I don't know how much Sarah knew. Um, one film I saw had her running after Abraham, thinking what was going to happen. I, I don't think so, because uh, the journey was uh, three days. Um, we don't know how much she knew. But notice the word, it says he tested Abraham. Now, it's important, that word. It's tested. It's not tempted. God, God does not tempt anyone. You know, when anyone sins, they can't say, well, I was tempted by God, and that's what happens. No, but God will test us. And he tests us all in different ways. We will go through trials. I mean, David prayed in Psalm 26, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. The word's the same Hebrew word, test me. Try my mind and my heart. What, what a brave prayer. Shows the faith he had. Test me, prove me. And yet, when our faith is tested, and we all have our faith tested at various points, through circumstances, through things that happen, through things we don't understand, I dare say all of us will go into eternity with some things that's happened in this life that we don't understand. Somebody said it's a bit like a tapestry. God sees the final version of the beautiful tapestry. We sometimes look like we're looking at the back with all those knots and loose strands, and we think, what was that about? God has a purpose. 
Now, 1 Peter 1 says that the testing of our faith is more precious than gold. So it is worthwhile. Romans 4 actually says of Abraham, verse 11, that he's the father of all those who believe. So he's an example. He's one who went before. Notice Abraham's immediate response. And, you know, I want to be like this if I feel God's spirit nudging me to do something. I'm not always, but I want to be. Here I am. Same words, by the way, that Moses said at the burning bush. Immediate availability. You see that the son whom you love, of course he did. Ahab, the Hebrew word there, that's actually the first mention of the word love in the Bible. First time it appears, the word, the the love of a father for his son. The son whom you love. And then he says, your only son. And why does it say that? Because obviously Ishmael was his son, obviously by a different woman as well. Later, by the way, after Sarah's death, we we know he had six other sons, at least, by Keturah. That's in Genesis 25. But Ishmael had left. There'd been a rift. Uh, She'd left because of differences, uh, tensions, to say the least, with Sarah. Hagar had left with Ishmael with the promise that he would become a great nation. He would be father of the Arab peoples. So he was the only one left in the household. He was also the only son of the promise, the scriptures tell us. That's in in Isaac, your seed shall be called, Genesis 21. It's a promised seed. So he's the only son in that sense. Abraham didn't choose his son's name. God chose it. You will know that. Uh, When God first gave him the promise that he was going to have a son, even though he was 100 and his wife was 90, she well past the age bearing children. When when Abraham heard that, he laughed. And in fact, later, when Sarah hears the same news, she laughs too. She denies she's laughing, but she does. God said, the Lord says, call him Isaac, which means laughter, or he laughed. It's a rare event to name a child, to to be named by God. There's another one whose child was named by God. That was the uh, child of Mary, and Joseph and her were told you should call his name Jesus. Jesus, what does Jesus mean? God saves. That's what the name means. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Go to the land of Moriah. Now, he was in Bathsheba. So where is Moriah? We have one clue, in fact, fact to where Moriah was. Roll on a thousand years. Roll on to David's son Solomon. And we have the truth of where it was. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So, now Jerusalem, of course, wasn't there at that point. David would later, when it was formed, would conquer it. But it was, the mount was there upon which Jerusalem uh, would be founded. Obviously, it's grown well beyond that since then. So we know where it was. Um, So what happened next? Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two. So early in the morning, I think it was the first opportunity he had, took two of his young men with him, two servants, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes 
and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad, I'll come back for that term in a minute. Now listen to this bit carefully. We'll go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Just think about that. Think about what he's been told to do. And he's going with just his son now, Isaac. And yet he's saying to the two servants and the donkey, if the donkey's listening, we will come back to you. Goodness, what an extraordinary statement. Is he going to be disobedient? What was he thinking? We'll get into it. As the crow flies today, the Sheba to Jerusalem is about 45 miles. Crows do fly pretty straight if you watch them. He wouldn't have been able to walk straight. He would have been following deserts and mountain paths, so maybe a fair bit further than that. So why was he willing to go ahead with his sacrifice spite of the incredible agony that we could not imagine? Why was he willing to set off in obedience? He knew it was the voice of God. As I said, he'd heard it half a dozen times. Now, we know that any birth, I mean, the process from conception to birth is truly amazing. I'm sure you will have read about it many times. So this was a particularly special miracle because of his uh, wife being past the age of bearing children at 90. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that he knew this was a special gift given to him. There are two other definite reasons, which we'll come to in a minute. But let me just go back to that word, the lad. Right, that is the Hebrew na'ar. Now, it's used a number of times in the scriptures, and it doesn't really pinpoint how old Isaac was. I mean, I'm sure some of you will have children's Bibles at home. It'd be interested to see what picture, how the child is represented, being tied to the altar on the wood and on, on the stone. Um, it's used, for instance, of Moses finding, being found by Pharaoh's daughter in Exodus 2.6. So that's an infant. But it's also used, just to give you another example, 1 Chronicles 12, 28, of Zadok. Zadok was a young man, a mighty man of valor, it says, in David's army. Well, what's the youngest you could be a mighty man of valor in David's army? Maybe late teens, maybe older than that. So that doesn't quite pinpoint his age to us. I'll come back to it in a minute. I don't think he was a youngster. We'll come back to it. But the first reason Abraham was willing to do this is held up in that phrase, we will return to you. See, Abraham had been given an unconditional covenant. The promise of the seed, the promise of the multiple blessings, the promise of the land was unconditional. It was not dependent upon Moses' behavior. The covenant, how it was sealed by God, proved that. It was all down to God. God said, I'm going to do this. Whatever, this is going to happen. And Abraham knew that God was a covenant keeper, not a man that would lie or change his mind. And this meant that Abraham reasoned in his head that if he went ahead and this was carried through, slit his son's throat, presume that's how he would have done the sacrifice, and then given him as a burnt offering, set fire to the wood, the awful act. He reasoned in his head, well, you've given me a promise that through his, my seed, Abraham through Isaac, there's going to be a great nation. So guess what he concluded? If I kill my precious son, God will raise him 
from the dead. Otherwise, God is a liar. God is not a liar. You might say, I'm not sure about that. Well, look what Hebrews said. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He did put him on the altar. He bound him to it. And he had received the promises, the covenant promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. There you are, the promised son. Concluding, and he did, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense as he took him back off the altar, as we'll find out later. There you go. Was he unusual in that respect? Well, he was certainly an incredible man of faith, but he wasn't the only one at his time who believed in the resurrection of the dead, which is at the heart of our faith. And the crucifixion we should ever be thankful for. But unless it was sealed by the resurrection, it would be of no benefit to us. But it is sealed by the resurrection. Job, it was reckoned, lived at the time of the patriarchs like Abraham too. So there's no reference to the law in there. And that man who was tested himself, beyond our understanding, look what he said. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, in other words, after I die, this I know, he knows it, that in my flesh I shall see God. He's talking of a resurrection body. Possibly the oldest book in the Bible. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. There you are, the belief just like Abraham in the resurrection of the dead. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. Not surprisingly, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my, my son. Isaac said, look, the fire, the wood, Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Well, by the way, the fire in his hand, he didn't burn his hands. They would have had live coals in a clay pot. That's how they carried fire for a sacrifice. I said about Isaac's age, that, that the word lad could be anything from an infant to a fighting man, fighting young man. I think we have a clue here. Um, I know that uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he, he thought Isaac was about 25. I won't go as far as that, but I would say I expect he was at least an older teenager. Because notice what it says. He laid the wood, and it would have been a lot of wood for a burnt offering, on his son, so probably on his shoulders. What did he do then? Isaac carried it up a mountain. It's not going to be a young child doing that, is it? God himself will provide the lamb. What is he talking about? Well, I believe what he's referring to here is Abraham's belief that we all need an innocent substitute to pay for our sin can't get anything more innocent than a lamb. Do you feel sorry for a lamb that's sacrificed for a ram? Well, I do. Done nothing wrong. It's in our place. 
And that's what he's talking about. God himself will provide the lamb. Abraham was willing to believe God because not only did he think, if I sacrifice him, he'll be raised from the dead, but I believe he was also hoping, maybe, God would see the agony of his heart and provide a substitute. Hoping, praying, please God. But he would go ahead because he knew it was the voice of God unless God changed his mind on this respect, told him to stop. But also that word was prophetic. God himself will provide the lamb. Of course, we know one who is the lamb of God. And he was looking forward, make no mistake, to the provision of an innocent sacrifice. That's what the sacrifice was about in the Old Testament, all shadows looking forward to the perfect sacrifice that was to come. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there, so he would have built stones upon stones, and then he put the wood on top of it in order. And then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. Bound him with ropes, I presume. Interestingly, by the way, I reckon Isaac could have resisted. He's an old man, his father. He was probably a, I said, probably a least a vigorous teenager. But he didn't. It tells us something about Isaac, doesn't it? It's the voice of God his father was following. Bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar and upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand. He got this far, took the knife, so raised the knife in his heir, presumably, to slay his son. But at this point, right at the last moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, voice from heaven, and it says the angel of the Lord, come back to that in a minute, Abraham, Abraham, twice, this is urgent. Here I am. There you are again, ready to obey. And here's the wonderful sentence. Angel of the Lord said to him, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, uh, some, a couple of years ago, I think, I did a preach here on the angel of the Lord. And I'm um, just going to explain it briefly to you. There's a version of it on my website, Unfolding Your Word. So if you talk, talk, type my name into Google with the angel of the Lord, you, you'd get a half an hour version of it. Because who is the angel of the Lord here? Notice that phrase. I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your only son from me. What a strange phrasing. I know that you fear God, that is the Father, since you've not withheld your only son from me. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, many passages in the Old Testament, like wrestling with Jacob. It is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Appearing often as a man, but not a man of flesh, because he was not yet born into human flesh, but appearing that way. Let's follow it through. It's an amazing thing. So here it is. It is, I believe, Jesus speaking, saying, I know you fear God the Father. And of course, that is part of the truth of the Trinity. So we now know... Abraham didn't until this moment, that God was not going to let this sacrifice take place. That we know the outcome. And that's crucial to understanding the passage. When people some say, well, oh, this is an awful passage. What is God like? But God was never going to allow it to go through. 
But why did he do it? Because he was going to prove two things that are vital to everyone's faith. Believing in an innocent sacrifice, the ultimate innocent sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus, and believing that God can raise the dead. Let me say to you, if God doesn't raise the dead, we may as well all go home. So we're wasting our time. Paul said, if Christ is not raised, we are of all men most miserable. What are we doing this for? But he does. He does raise the dead. But also, we know now that God was never going to allow this sacrifice to take place. So what does God make of human sacrifice? Well, let me just give you this. Deuteronomy 18, there's quite a bit about sacrifice, human sacrifice in the Bible as a rebellion against God and as sacrifice to um, evil gods, to idols. I won't get into the subject of abortion today. But children in the womb are innocent. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's not some sort of trick running through a fire. What it's referring to is being sacrificed as a burnt offering in fire. Or being sacrificed in many cases to the god Molech. Um, I won't do it because it's Sunday lunch next. But the way they sacrificed to Molech young children was absolutely horrific. And I, I won't go further than that. If you wanted to, you can find the details anywhere. Just look up sacrifice to Molech. It was horrific. What does God say through Jeremiah of the rebellious people of Judah following the evil practices of nations around them? That's why God destroyed some of those nations. They're evil and they're rebellion. They built high places of Baal. Remember Baal? The opposition to God. Which were in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Because their sons and daughters, to cause... They built the high places to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. That means to be sacrificed in the statue's burning arms. Which I did not command them. And look how much he hates human sacrifice. Nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination, a word used of particularly vile sins, to cause Judah to sin. So God, let's be clear, Detests human sacrifice. He never allowed this sacrifice to go ahead. When he says, now I know that you fear God, right? Well, God, isn't God omniscient? Did he not know? Yes, he did know. He knew that Abraham feared him, but he was proving it. He was testing it as much for Abraham and as much for our benefit. But into actuality and time, as Abraham, it obeys this knowledge becomes a reality in action. It's actualized. So what happened next? Thank God. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram, innocent, caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead. Notice that word. Instead of his son. Abraham named the place. The Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh. And it's said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, Mount Moriah, Temple Mount, it shall be provided. Now, uh, some of you will have seen uh, pictures of Jews blowing ram's horn, the shofar, 
yeah? It is a ram's horn. Uh, for instance, one of the times they will do it, uh, practicing Jews, is on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. That's about mid-September this year. And uh, during that celebration, they remember the binding, the Akedah, as they call this account of what happened to Isaac being spared. And the ram's horn is remembered as representing the ram being substituted for Isaac. So next time you hear a shofar being blown, remember that. The name is called the Lord will provide, and the Lord did provide a substitute for Isaac. And that became the name of Mount Moriah. And yet, although we're not sure of the exact location, uh, some say it's sure, others are not so sure, we know that Calvary, or Golgotha, was a rocky outcrop somewhere on Mount Moriah. God will provide. But also provide in the future, by the way. When Jesus comes to reign, like a pastor, I believe, in a millennial reign of Jesus upon this earth. Revelation 20 and a number of other passages. Isaiah 2, 3. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Same mountain. To the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem when Jesus reigns. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but my feeling is that I tend to think that Calvary was the exact spot where Isaac was offered up. It's the same Mount Moriah. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you. I will multiply, I'm multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, ultimately through Jesus, although the Jews have been a great blessing. Because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. As he said, we'll worship and come back to you. And this is how it happened. And they rose and went together to Bathsheba, and Abraham dwelt at Bathsheba. Let me just sidetrack for a minute. As the sand on the seashore, I know we tend to have shingle down here. I was a bit shocked when I came from the north of England. I was used to sandy beaches, colder than here. And I came down here, what, what are all these stones? What's all this about? I know it's the flint pebbles from the chalk cliffs that don't wear away very quickly at all. It's a bit of a shock. But sand on the seashore, you can't count the grains of sand. What about the stars? We take it for granted, don't we? Can't count the stars. Do you know, people haven't always taken it for granted. And I'm talking about intelligent people. Ptolemy in the second century, an astronomer, produced a star catalogue that was still being used in the Middle of Ages. He said there are 1,022 stars. Yeah, people say, oh, that many? Goodness. 1687, Johannes Hevelius, mayor of Gdansk, and a well-known astronomer, he revised the number to 1,564. It's not that they were simple. That was their knowledge at the time. They were intelligent people. Let's see if I can get this. There we go. 
He counts the number of stars, says the word of God. He calls them all by name. So how many stars? Let me give you the latest. No one knows. If anyone tells you, don't believe them. But they're the latest estimates. Right, our Milky Way that we're in, they reckon it's 100 billion stars. That's one with nine noughts. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, but that's just one galaxy. How many galaxies are there? Latest estimate between 100 and 200 billion. What's that? Well, <laughs> put it all together, how many stars would that be? I, I can't say the number. I was not, not that brilliant at mass, but it's two with 22 zeros. And you might say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. Somebody's worked this out. How many stars were there if it's two with 22 zeros based on the figures I've just given you, the latest estimates? Okay, get a computer and get it counting 10 million stars a second. How long would a computer take to count the number of stars on present estimates? Remember, 10 million stars a second, computer. Answer, 63 million years. He counts them all, calls them all by name. So when the Lord said to Abraham, I'll make your descendants countless, he meant it. Abraham would have been pulled out of his tent in Genesis 15, look up at the skies when he first said it to him. No light pollution, middle of the desert, lots of stars. Abraham said, I can't count them. Well, he could only see a small portion. Now, um, by the way, when it also said, you possess the gates of your enemies, and I, I believe this will come to a time, obviously David and Solomon conquered their enemies, but it was never... Total peace, that will come in the reign of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Where they will control Israel, their borders safely, it will be expanded borders. The gates of the city is a reference. If you held the gates of the city, you controlled the city. So the final glories are to come. Now, let me finish the last five minutes or so, or ten minutes or so, talking about some of the shadows, the foreshadowing. I've already mentioned some, of course that are in this passage with some crucial differences. He was told, take your only son whom you love. And it used the word begotten in Hebrews. Now, Jesus is described in the book, a Gospel of John as the only begotten son of God. Now, begotten there, some confuse it. They, they think, oh, that word means Jesus had a beginning. You'll find Jehovah's Witnesses will teach you that. Sometime in the past, Jesus was created. And, of course, that is blasphemy in Scripture. It's not the truth. Jesus has been the eternal I am along with the Father. Only begotten, actually, the word really means unique, the only one of his kind. And, of course, Isaac was the promised son. And Jesus was the son of God without a human father. And he was beloved, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, said the Father from heaven at his baptism. When Jesus was praying to the Father about his disciples in John 17, he said, I've declared to them your name and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Eternal love in the past. Here I am. Do you remember Abraham said, here I am. Hebrews 10.7 quotes Psalm 40. Behold, I've come, speaking of Jesus, Jesus speaking here, in the volume of the book it's written of me, to do your will, O God. That phrase, behold, I come, the NIV correctly also translates, here I am. You can translate it both ways. 
Here I am to do your will, O God. Same thing. Now, Jesus, unlike Isaac, knew how his first coming, how his coming would end. He's called in Revelation 13, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He always knew what was going to happen. Abraham laid the wood on his son's shoulders. That's how we knew he wasn't that young. God planned that a cross of wood would be laid on his son's shoulders. Abraham's son carried the wood up the mountain to the place of sacrifice. Jesus carried his own cross. Although he was so badly treated, Simon of Cyrene also carried it some of the way. Abraham lays his son on the wood and binds him to it. Even so, our precious saviour was nailed to a cross and bound to a tree in that way. Because of the will of the Father and his own will, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And also says in Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. It's for us, for our sake. Jesus even prayed, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here I am to do your will, O God. When Peter uh, sliced off Malchus's ear and tried to help with this arresting party, coming to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, Jesus said, don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000, by the way, by most estimates, to sort this out if I wanted? No. He laid his life down willingly. He says Abraham offered up a burnt offering instead. Do you remember that word? Instead of his son. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That word for can also be stand, translated instead. It's used, for instance, of Achilles reigning instead of his father, Herod. To give his life a ransom instead of many. Also on our behalf, of course. In our place. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. What did John say when he saw John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He could have said, behold, my cousin, but I don't know. He said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Why? For he made him, said Paul in Corinthians, to be, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, because he took our sin upon him. Why? That we might be the righteousness of God in him. And when we come to sing in a couple of minutes' time, the final Song, praising the Lord. You come before the Lord. What level of righteousness do you come before the Lord in? We confess our sins. We know we're sinners. Well, we have a robe of righteousness. It says here that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Whose righteousness do we have? Jesus' righteousness. Are you 50% righteous when you come before God in Jesus' robe? No. Are you 99%? No, you're 100%. Because that's the level of Jesus' righteousness. Notice that phrase, we will come back to you. Come back to that. We will come back to you, said Abraham. Because God's going to have to raise Isaac if I kill him to fulfill his promises. Now, of course, the scriptures say God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But the scripture also says Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Did you know that? John 2, 18 to 21. He just turned over the temple tables. Made my father's house a den of thieves. 
By what right do you do this? Said the Jewish leaders. What are you doing? What sign do you show us to do these things? This is John 2, 18 to 21. What sign? Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Of course, he's talking himself as a temple. There he was, fullness of the Godhead bodily. What did they think? What's he talking about? Ha, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you want to raise it in three days? But it says he was speaking of the temple of his body. The disciples later understood. There, Jesus says, I will raise myself from the dead. That's the Trinity. Is it true the Father raised him from the dead? The Spirit raised him from the dead? Absolutely. Is it true Jesus raised himself from the dead? Absolutely. That's the Trinity for you. The difference is, of course, had Lazarus been raised from the dead, sorry, had Isaac been raised from the dead, like Lazarus, he would have died again. But Jesus didn't. And likewise, when we're resurrected from the dead after death, unless the Lord returns first, we will not die again. It's to eternal life. Abraham figuratively received his son back as he raised him back off the altar. We look forward to resurrection in Jesus. So, Abraham saw clearly two things. One, the need for an innocent, perfect lamb of God, the need for a substitute, and also the truth of the resurrection. That's why he's an example of faith to others. And that's why God allowed, even commanded, this shocking story to take place in history, which he was never going to allow to come to fruition. I'm just going to read three last verses as we finish. If I could ask the uh, worship team to come up, so we'll go straight to a song at the end of this in thanking the Lord. But Jesus actually said to Jews who were criticizing him, look at this, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. What's he saying? Abraham knew one would come who would be the perfect sacrifice and one would come who is the resurrection and the life. And he rejoiced at that. Paul tells us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered it up for us all, how she not with him also freely give us all things. We need eternity to experience that. And let's just remember, right? Death is, is awful. It really is. But it's not the end. There is comfort. Behold, I tell you a mystery, says Paul, we shall not all sleep. There is a generation. Could be ours, could be the next one, could be the one after that. We should not all sleep. We're not all going to die, says Paul. Some will be ratchet. But if not, if the Lord tarries, we'll all be, still be changed in a moment. Anything that's wrong with your body won't be wrong then. We'll all be handsome, we'll all be pretty. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. No need for medicines because we'll all be changed. Amen.